Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Katie. Hey, Ashley. How are you? I'm good now that the levels on my mic are where they're supposed to be. (laughs) We are recording during Mercury Retrograde, which we just discussed. And if you don't know what that means, it's just a good time to check everything three times before you do it. Check all your tech. (laughs) All of it. All of it. I guess we'll probably release this while it's still going on through, like, I don't know, second week of May, maybe? Yeah. I can't remember the dates. But anyway, I'm really looking forward to this conversation we didn't record for a little bit. So it's it's always good to be back recording. And mm-hmm. also, I didn't realize when we scheduled this, but we're recording on April 28th, 2023. And this is actually the 30th anniversary of my maternal grandmother's death, which is just mm. wild to me that it's been that long. Um, yeah. And so many significant things happen in years that end with three, I'm realizing, because I'm turning 40 this year, too. Hit 10 years of marriage. And it's like, that's something I'm going to pay attention to um, in the future, that these are like monumental years for me. But anyway, I, yeah. we've talked a lot about grief on this podcast. It's not something that we shy away from at all. Um, I know you've got your own. And even though it's been 30 years, which feels like so long, that grief is still there. You know, it absolutely is still there. Yeah. Um, when people talk about making friends with your grief, I think that's so important because our grief doesn't ever leave us. And so we have to kind of just make friends with them um, being with us. And I I still really miss my grandmother's presence in my Mm. 3D life. You know, like I wish that she was still around, even though she would be very old now. But just all that time that I missed with her growing up and early adulthood. And as I've talked about before, probably on this show, my grandmother has been such a guide for me on the other side ever since that yeah. time. So she's just really on my mind today, and that's a bittersweet thing. It's mostly sweet, and I just felt like it was important to mention her. And I know she's probably here in our midst as I'm talking about her now and would probably be tickled by this conversation because she had – well, anyway, I'll stop there. I don't want to do a spoiler <laughs> for the episode. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I – Really appreciate you sharing that here. And I just want you to know that the way that you have always talked about your grandmother's presence on the other side has been really healing for me. So thank you. You were the one who introduced me to the idea that our loved ones are communicating with us from the other side. And that has really been a source of comfort for me, especially over this last year. And I'm also in the midst of some hard anniversaries. My grandmother's birthday was this past Sunday, Mm. and the first anniversary of her death is coming up in a few weeks. And so, yeah, it's just a hard time. And I really love hearing you talk about your grandmother and how she's still such a presence in your life because it's just a really beautiful example of of a path through grief, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And one that has really been meaningful to me. So I just want to say that. All right. Are we ready? Tackling the taboo. Yes. Let's do it. (laughs) Keep doing it. Okay. So far in this Tackling the Taboo series, we've talked about sexuality and sex and sex education and alcohol and wine mom culture. So I'm curious, how has it felt to be talking about these things that aren't always easy to talk about? I guess they've felt relatively easy doing with you, I think. Mm. Um, (laughs) And also, it's funny, I'm really diving into learning more about my natal astrological chart, because I just find the whole thing really fascinating. And the more I learn about it, the more I realize that talking about things that are taboo is actually very natural for me or destined based on my chart. I have a lot of signs in Gemini, which is about communication, And a lot of those Mm. planets fall into the eighth house, which is in astrology, the things like sex and death and money, like a lot of things that we keep in the shadows. Mm. And so having those two things align, it actually really makes sense that these are the kinds of things that I enjoy and feel good talking about and is an alignment with what I feel like part of my soul's calling, which is to facilitate healings around these parts of ourselves that we feel shame about and keep hidden So I'm excited to keep going and tackle more topics and maybe we will get braver 
as we yeah. go along um, <laughs> in this journey. We'll see. We'll see. It's unfolding. So how about you? How's it felt? I think it's been pretty fun. I don't know if you feel this way, but these past few episodes have reminded me a lot of our very early podcasting days where we just picked a topic because it was what was on our minds. And usually it was a topic that we were having trouble talking about with other people or we weren't seeing our thoughts, you know, reflected in a bigger conversation. And so we were just hungry for a a person to talk to you and a place to talk about it. And I don't know, there's just something nostalgic about that because I feel like these Mm -hmm. episodes have been very similar to me. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. All right. What taboo are we getting into this time? In this episode, we are going to talk about something that we share, which is being one and done, meaning being parents of only children. And Mm -hmm. on the surface, that might not seem like the most taboo topic necessarily, especially compared to some of the other things that we've discussed. But I think as we get into the conversation, we'll start to unpack some of the stigma and assumptions that surround this particular family structure that make it taboo. Mm, That is right. And I want to say up front that we're talking about being one and done by choice. And we know that that is not the case for everyone. And we're going to talk about this a little more, especially when we do get to talking about stigma around family size and the things people have said to us about being parents of an only child. But if this is a sensitive subject for you, you can skip this episode and join us next time. This topic is complex, just as our feelings on it are complex. But ultimately, we are grounding this conversation in the joy of being parents of only children. Mm, I like that. Yeah. And like a lot of the other topics we've explored so far, this is one that I would not have been ready to talk about when we first started Kindreds back in 2017. Yeah. (laughs) If you are a newer listener or maybe just want to hear the evolution of our own thinking about parenting, you can go all the way back to our third episode, which is called The Question of Kids, in which you and I had a conversation when you were discerning whether or not to explore like the pathway to becoming a parent. And I can't remember, but were you pregnant with Avery at the time that we released that episode? I think we were trying to get pregnant around the same time. Yes. And I think we were maybe trying when we recorded. And by the time we released the episode, I think maybe (laughs) I was pregnant. (laughs) But we had definitely made the decision, I know, to at least try and see what happened around that time. And I remember talking to you a lot while we were still in that contemplation phase because I didn't have a lot of people in my life who were willing to talk openly and frankly about what it's actually like having and raising a kid, you know, the good and the bad. It's a subject that people just – I think there's so much stigma and shame around how we approach being parents and – I don't know. It's hard. It seems like it's hard for people to really want to talk honestly about it. Yeah, you're going to be judged if you admit to the hard parts without yes. some kind of qualifier. Exactly. Exactly. That question of kids episode really illustrates my approach to having a kid. I could have gone either way, truthfully, having one or not. And from the beginning, my husband and I said we would try to have one and then see how we felt after that. And I never had an image in my mind of an ideal family size or like wanting to recreate my own childhood experience with siblings or anything like that. So I'll be honest and say that being one and done has been a tough decision. I've gone back and forth with it over the years. And for a long time, I kept telling myself like, when this thing changes, I'll want another kid when I can pull back at work when we have more money or when Avery's a little older and out of the toddler years and it's not so hard, then, then I'll be ready and I'll know and I'll, I'll want another kid. But honestly, I think deep down, if I'd really wanted another one, I'd have found a way to make it happen regardless of the circumstances, just like so many other families do, you know? Mm -hmm. And I guess I want to be careful about how I talk about this because it's my husband's story too. But I think he'd agree that being one and done has been more my decision. And I also want to make it clear that no one should have to justify their reproductive decision making to anyone else. Your reasons for having or not having a child or children are valid. But 
I'll share a few of the biggest factors in why one and done was right for me, just in case it's helpful for anybody else to hear that. And the first reason is my mental health, which took a big hit when I first became pregnant and then again when I became a parent. And it has been a significant journey for me that I've talked about on the podcast over the years. So mental health, a very real reason why Mm -hmm. um, that affects family size, you know? Mm -hmm. And another very real reason is money. Basically, the cost of pregnancy and childbirth, as well as adding another person to our family and everything that would entail over the lifetime of our family, you know, we would for sure need a bigger house. (laughs) We are definitely. (laughs) Yeah, we are bursting at the seams as it is. And that is not a small thing, especially in this housing market, you know, like buying a house, it's it's not a small thing. And sometimes people are like, oh, whatever, just like get a bigger house. <laughs> that's, not, that's not real. <laughs> and, you know, there are other reasons like not really wanting to go through pregnancy and childbirth again in our Mississippi healthcare system that was never good for mothers. But it's even worse now that it's been just totally decimated by politics and the pandemic. I didn't have a great healthcare experience when I was pregnant and when I went through labor and delivery with Avery, which I talked about a little bit in our Women in Pain episode a few years ago. And I honestly have no reason to think that it would be any different or better a second time, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's a, I mean, that's a fear. But at the end of the day, what I know is that deep in my gut, I feel really happy with our family as it is, and right now I don't want it to change, and that feels like reason enough, you know? Mm -hmm. My feelings about this could always change, I guess. Our circumstances could always change, but for now, this is where I am, and and I'm comfortable with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I know, Katie, your one-and-done story is a little different, but are you willing to share a bit about what it's been like for you? Yeah. And what you said at the very end about being happy with your family as it is, that is absolutely where I am now, which makes it much easier to talk about. And even just last night, I was reading in bed. I had Sammy next to me and the dog was by our feet. And I'm like, this is so nice. Like, we're both Mm -hmm. just sitting here reading our books. And I, I don't know, just one of those moments of real, like, this is one of those moments you want to remember and just hold on to. And I I feel the same way. I'm very much at peace about where we are now. It's definitely not always been true. And I can talk a little bit about that. But I love your honesty at the beginning of that part where you were just saying you could have gone either way. And that I felt the same way, Matt, and I felt the same way. I never felt like parenting was a calling or that the decision to parent was somehow more sacred than the decision not to, you know? And I should say, too, that unlike a lot of people I know and love and I know is true for you, I never had to face infertility or pregnancy loss. Mm -hmm. And I think because of that, I really didn't have to dig deeply into how committed I was or that we were to this path of parenting in terms of how many resources we were willing to allocate toward making it happen or how long we were willing to try. You know, it just didn't it wasn't that way for us. You know, we were very fortunate like our path to having our daughter was was relatively smooth, all things considered. I mean, there were other complications, like I didn't have maternity leave after childbirth, which I've talked about. And like, yeah, that's far too common and frankly, a societal barrier to people parenting at all in the first place. It really is. Mm-hmm. It really, really is. So like for you, the decision to be one and done wasn't easy. Like I never felt I don't think there was a moment of going like, okay, we're just, we're good right now, you know, especially in like the immediate aftermath of having Sammy. And I think that there's probably still some grief there for me a little bit. Like, even though that decision now feels like a long time ago, because Sam is going to be nine this year. Wow. Yeah, I know. Wild, (laughs) right? Oh my gosh. I know. I know. And I think it's just like any other major life decision. And this is something I talked about a lot in my book, A Complicated Choice About Abortion. Like, There's always a mixture of emotions around making a major life decision because making a decision to do one thing necessitates that you don't do something else. It's making a decision. You're choosing a path. And that other thing that you didn't choose could be equally great as the one that you did. And it's just 
the not knowing and kind of letting go of the the fantasy I think oftentimes the, the fantasy and the what ifs yeah yeah because I know for me like I often thought well I would love to just go through this experience again now that I have some sense of what it's like but you're not I guaranteed that too. well yeah but mm-hmm. it's like assuming that it's going to be a duplicative experience yep. and yep. from everyone I've talked to like their pregnancies were different their kids were so different yep. like the rules don't always apply so maybe having the naivete <laughs> is better because <laughs> yeah. you're like this is all I know so yeah. but but there's still definitely a little bit of grief around that um and I think the toughest time for me, and I don't know if this was true for you, but when Sam was around two or three, that was actually around the time you and I first met in person, Ashley. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this before. I don't know if we've talked about it this way. The first time you and I spent real time together was at a conference in D.C. in the summer of 2017 when we launched Kindreds. Yep. Yeah. And you had just found out yeah. that you were pregnant like a few days before. Yes. Really like early. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A week. And. <laughs> I have to say, we had a mutual colleague who was also there. Yes. Who <laughs> was pregnant with her second child, like maybe a few weeks beyond where you were, but not much more. And she was very vocal about it. Very vocal. <laughs> like, yeah, at every opportunity. And I remember sitting in our hotel room and crying because this is so irrational, but I felt like this betrayal in my life where like, Everyone I knew was pregnant at that time. That was how it felt. And I was still, like, coming to terms with the fact that we had made the decision that we weren't going to have another kid. Mm -hmm. And I was, like, actively grieving. And it was a very lonely experience. That whole conference, I was just like, please stop talking about this. But, like, not being able to say... And you were so sensitive because you weren't telling anybody. But it was just, like, this (sighs) unspoken thing, dynamic, that was really tough for me. I remember that. It was so horrible. And I remember feeling especially bad because it was also your birthday. It was. <laughs> it was my birthday. And you were away from your family at a work conference. And we, like, tried to make a nice happy birthday dinner for you and everything. But, like, it was. I wasn't drinking because I was pregnant. And our other friend wasn't drinking because she was pregnant. And she was telling everyone she wasn't <laughs> drinking because she was pregnant. I know. And I'm pretty sure. So, yes, I had just found out I was pregnant that week. And I'm pretty sure that only you and my husband and my one other best friend even knew about it. Mm -hmm. I honestly had not wrapped my mind around it yet and was still kind of in that panic phase. Like, oh, crap, I'm pregnant. What did I do? What have I done? Mm -hmm. That kind of feeling. So I just wanted to pretend like nothing had changed. But our friend, yeah, she couldn't stop talking about it. And it just became super awkward. I think we were as as awesome as it was to get to spend time with you that week. And we got to uh, co-lead a breakout session together. And That's that right. was a really cool – yeah, like we weren't there just attending. We were um, hosting a session, yeah. Mm-hmm. And like all of that was really cool. But I think we were both really <laughs> ready to go home when it was over. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, It was an awkward, it was an awkward thing. There were definitely good parts. And I, you know, Mm -hmm. I didn't want to rain on our friend's parade because she was so happy. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I did my best to push my own feelings down when we were around her. And I'd gotten pretty good at that at that point, because around that time, like I said, it seemed like everybody was getting pregnant. I was picking Sammy up from daycare and it seemed like every week one of the moms was announcing a pregnancy. And I think most of Sammy's classmates were first kids when I think about it, you know, which is kind of unusual. So a lot of people were having, like, we're getting pregnant around that time. And Sam's daycare teachers would ask me all the time, like, when are you going to have another kid? And I remember coming home from picking her up one day and telling Matt that I was done with that responsibility because I was so tired of being asked about when we were going to have another kid. And I knew that they weren't going to bug him about it because he's a dude. Uh And, you know, in our relationship, it was more Matt than me in terms of only wanting to have one. And so it was Uh kind of like, here's a way that he can sort of help alleviate the the circumstances yeah. that were hard for me because I was like this is not fair that like I would yeah. think I would like to have another kid and I'm the one being asked about it 
and having to be like, we're not. It was just, it was really uncomfortable for me and hard. And, you know, like you mentioned, this is a story that involves more than just me. So I don't want to go into too many details. But like when I think about it now, ultimately having one kid was the decision that made sense for us in terms of our capacity. Also, it's not a thing that you can compromise on. You make the decision or you don't. It's not yep. like you there's can't, no halfway. You can't have a half. You can't have 2.5 kids <laughs> no. or 1.5. So, yep. and like I said, as time goes on, I just feel more and more at peace and confident that that ultimately was the right thing for us. For us. And nothing solidified it more for me than the pandemic. And uh-huh. having Sammy, who was still in daycare, at home full time. While both of us tried to do our full-time jobs at the same time, like, I could not have imagined doing that with two kids. One of whom would have been younger than Sam. Yeah. Would have been, like, young preschool. A toddler. A toddler. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. But honestly, even to this day, when I'm just weeks away from turning 40, I don't think I look – I don't think I look it. But seriously, I'm about to turn 40. Some people, like, continue to ask me about this. Uh-huh. And, like, this – stupid dental hygienist I saw. It's like the first thing that she asked me. I never met her before. And then I'm just like, all I want to do is have my teeth cleaned. Like, I don't want to have a conversation. I don't want to have a conversation, period. But especially about my reproductive life. It's like incredibly yep. problematic. How is a society that seems to be considered like completely normal thing to ask small anyone? Talk. Yeah, small it's small talk. talk. Yeah, tell me about your reproductive journey. (laughs) Right. Like, it's (laughs) such an intimate question Mm -hmm. about a person's body and sexuality and their relationship status and their economic status. Like, all of those things are being asked about in that moment because, like, the decision to parent usually impacts most, if not all of these things, for most Mm -hmm. people. So I have Mm -hmm. a lot of of strong feelings about this. So... (laughs) We can pivot for a minute. Let me calm down, <laughs> take a deep breath, and talk about what what we normally talk about, which is like our own upbringing around this topic. So what was your family structure of origin growing up? Like, what's your experience with siblings? And how do you think that that shaped your life? Yeah, I do want to come back to what you just said about all the things people say to others, mostly women, about their reproductive lives. So let's put a pin in that. I'll take some deep (laughs) breaths while we move on. We'll be ready in a few minutes. (laughs) To answer your question, okay, I grew up the oldest of two. I am almost five years older than my brother, and my parents got divorced Not long after, within months after he was born. So Mm. I ended up in that classic role of being an oldest daughter who helps take care of her younger sibling. And sometimes that was really hard. You know, I had a lot of responsibility growing up that my friends didn't have either because they were younger in their birth order or maybe they were closer in age to their siblings. So it was less of a caregiving dynamic. Uh, I had moments where I resented it a lot, especially in the summers where I was responsible for babysitting him every day, which meant that I couldn't go out and be a kid and do like the summer kid things and hang out with my friends and stuff like that, you know? And I think because of that age difference and that dynamic where I was often responsible for him, my brother and I weren't really what I would call friends growing up. We were close in the way that people who live in the same house and have a lot of shared experiences are close, but we were never in the same school. We had totally different friend groups. And I left home for college like as he was finishing up middle school and starting high school. So I wasn't even there for his high school years at all. And that, you know, that makes me kind of sad. I think that would have been cool. I had friends who were like a grade apart in school. And so they had a lot of the same experiences in high school and like shared friends and all of that. And that seems like a cool thing. But now I will say that my brother is one of my best friends, but that didn't happen until we were both in our 20s. It's like we had to grow up and grow apart and then grow back together is kind of how our journey went. And my mom also remarried when I was in my early 20s. So now we have two stepsisters. They are five and 10 years younger than me, which is a big gap, especially considering that we never grew up in the same house. We didn't grow up together at all. And I've only really known them as teenagers and adults. 
and I do consider them friends. One of my sisters lives nearby and I see her often. So I'd say we're fairly close. But my other sister lives across the country. I only see her every couple of years. So, you know, the tie is less strong, I would say. But as far as how having siblings has shaped me, so even including my stepsisters, I am still the oldest by far. And I'd say I have a lot of oldest daughter energy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, for a long time, I was the one who carried the mental and emotional load of my siblings. Things like being there for our aging relatives, helping plan family events and holidays, organizing gifts for our family. You know, I was closest to my mom for a long time. And sometimes the lines could be pretty blurry between us, you know, that kind of thing. I feel like oldest daughters in our audience (laughs) probably recognize. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, on the one hand, being an oldest daughter taught me a lot. I have I learned a lot of empathy and recognizing the needs of others and how to show up for people and leadership and being organized, being a project manager, how to wrangle people, like Mm -hmm. all of those skills, I think started pretty early but there is a flip side you know I spent my childhood and young adulthood plagued by perfectionism and the need to people please and boundaries have been hard for me probably for a lot of oldest daughters and a lot of the work I've done in therapy is recognizing what is mine and what is for others my mom or my siblings might share their problems with me but it's not my job to fix them or take them on as my own. And I think that is a journey I'm going to be on for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So what about you? As you were talking, I was thinking, wow, there's so much overlap, even though our family structures are completely different. And it makes Mm. me just think about how this is only one component of how we're shaped. Although we do share, you know, divorced parents and being the only daughter. Well, with your, with your brother. Um, Cause I'm actually the youngest. I'm the youngest Mm -hmm. of three with two older brothers, um, one who's about the same age difference that you and your brother are, about like four and a half, five years, and then one who is nine years older. So those are significant gaps in age, um, especially when I was a young kid, you know, and in a lot of ways, I feel like all three of us grew up in totally different households uh, because our family dynamics changed a lot over the course of my childhood as I shared, my maternal grandmother died. She was a very important figure. She lived close to us, was definitely another parent figure. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was a lot more involved in my older brother's lives, just longer through their teenage years. And then my parents got divorced. So those were major pivot points in how my family operated. And because yeah. those things happened at very different developmental ages for my brothers and me, they impacted us in different ways and shaped us in different ways. You know, and there's youngest children get a lot of crap. I should say I'm actually Uh married. I'm married to a youngest, um, which I think we, there's a lot we share. Um, And he and his brother were closer in age, like less than two years. So they, they had that experience you were talking about of being just one grade apart. And that has its own, that has its own set of challenges. And also the oldest one, (laughs) the older one still acted like a parent figure, even though, it was just like 17 months apart. So it's just interesting. Family structure is so interesting. But, it is. you know, youngest children, like they're talked about being babied and like being allowed to get away with things. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure some of that was at play, especially when I was young. But being the only daughter and with the circumstances surrounding my childhood, I would say that I acted more like a typical oldest child or or maybe even more like an only child in some mm-hmm. ways. Because of that age gap, though, between my brothers and me, it felt like when I was born, I was just born into an already very established family structure and rhythm that I more or less just like had to adapt to. I didn't really have any choice. My mom says like she brought me to my brother's swim class when I was just like a few days old, which now I think about like how careful we were with Sam at first. Yes. Well, (laughs) my son has swim class, so... We got to go, that's you know, what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. And so as a kid, I spent a lot of time on my own at my brother's sports events, which were like constant and mm. learned to make friends quickly with, you know, whoever other random younger siblings were there. And so in that way, it was kind of independent, kind of lonely. And I had to be 
like an only child in a lot of ways because I didn't really play with my older brothers that much. We just were so different in terms of where we were age-wise. And as we've grown up, I'm definitely closer to the to the brother who's um, closer in age. Like we kind of went through that same transition that you and your brother did. But really, we've all sort of maintained our separateness. Like all three of us, we love each other, but we're not really close. We're the opposite of enmeshed as a family. We all live in different cities. We all have our own families. We have dramatically different careers. Uh, We've never been a family to have like a group text chain or talk on the phone that much. We're all pretty independent and focused on our own lives and families. And all of us have young kids in our household right now, too. And I think that's one Mm -hmm. factor. So maybe that will change. But honestly, I don't know. And I think that that reality of our separateness bumps up against some of the myths around only children and what they miss out on. Like this assumption that Mm -hmm. having siblings means that you have built in friends for life. And I'm not sure where this mythology comes from exactly. But for most people I know who have siblings, like myself included, that is way more fantasy than reality. Um, So... Let's talk about misconceptions that people have about only children, because there are a lot. There are a lot. And when you said, I'm not sure where this mythology comes from, I was like, well, it doesn't come from the Bible, because what we have in the Bible is Cain and Abel. (laughs) Right. You have a built-in murderer. Murderer. (laughs) Built-in enemy. (laughs) Like, there's a lot of sibling rivalry in the Bible. Romulus and Remus, Uh, too, going back to ancient Rome. There's all kinds of stuff about sibling rivalry, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, I don't know where this mythology comes from. Um, I have some theories, but back to the <laughs> misconceptions about only children. So I hear a lot of negative stereotypes and misconceptions often. I don't know how often you come across this stuff, but I was reading a great article recently in The Atlantic. It was from last November that gives several examples, and it's called... <laughs> I love this title. Why are people weird about only children? (laughs) The author, Chiara Delahoyo, I think is how you pronounce her name, is an only child herself. And in the intro, she writes, I'll just read this intro paragraph because it sums it up perfectly. When I was a child, my lack of siblings was often a source of bewildered concern. Don't you get lonely? People would ask. Bet you wish you had someone to play with. Often, my mom was asked when she'd give me a brother or sister. But as I grew up, sympathy was overtaken by suspicion. You're such an only child became a recurring mantra, whether I'd asserted a strong opinion or played sick to avoid dodgeball. In the cultural consciousness, only children are frequently pegged as weirdos, maladjusted, selfish, spoiled, uncompromising, or just unusually precocious. We are at once pitied for our siblingless childhood and judged for the supposed eccentricities it left us with. <laughs> and I read that paragraph and was like checking them off. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, yep, heard that one. Yep, heard that one. As the parent of an only child, I've heard every one of these in some shape or form. And I'm not going to go through them one by one because I think it's pretty obvious that these are nothing more than stereotypes. There are way too many variables that shape a person's personality. And we were just talking about so many, like family size and structure being one of them. But Mm -hmm. I mean, things like parenting styles, socioeconomic status, where you grew up, adverse childhood events, like those things all play a role in who we are. And of course, the presence of siblings would too, but it's impossible to tease out, you know, one specific cause. And it is unfair to attribute every negative trait someone might have to whether or not they had siblings. It just seems foolish to me. Yeah, so reductive. It is. I encourage people to read the article. We'll link it in the show notes because it explains where some of these ideas about only children came from. Which I'll just say, we have seen this in publications in the U.S. as early as 1896. And negative misconceptions about only children have only been reinforced ever since. And it's not coming from peer-reviewed literature. I'll just say that. <laughs> it's Yeah. It's mostly coming from, like, morality-type perspectives, you know? Um, so mm. it's it's interesting to dig into. 
Yeah, and we'll talk more about the ideology underneath that soon. But I just have to say, when I was researching this, there was actually something called only child syndrome. I believe it. Invented <laughs> back in the time you were talking about, like late 19th century. And of course, uh-huh. it's totally been debunked. But when stuff like that gets introduced into the culture and takes off, mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter if it's true or data backed. It's the mm-hmm. stigma connected to it remains. And I will just say, in defense of having an only child, and of course, this is anecdotal, what I have been so amazed at is is the way that Sammy is way better at some things than I was as a kid, I think in part because she's an only child. Like, Mm. she's so good at sharing. Um, She's the first, if we're out to lunch and she'll have french fries, like, she's always the first to offer. And I think, yeah, she really, she's (laughs) always. Yeah. And she also has way better boundaries than I do, or did, Mm. like, up until a few years ago. You know, I think she's just. Yeah, she's just got a sense of her own self and she feels secure in herself which means she's able to share parts of herself or things that are hers out of choice and I Mm. think you know a lot of that has to do with parenting for sure and just her personality but because she's not constantly having a battle with someone else for what belongs to her Mm. she's Mm -hmm. much more inclined to share what she has because she's not forced to and I think that that Mm -hmm. is a common thing among siblings is like there's almost a forced getting along or forced sharing that can sometimes feel sort of arbitrary. And it's the decision to share or be generous is a decision that she gets to make from her own desire to give, you know? Um, So she's just an amazing human being. I'm really glad to be in a family with her, period. Sammy's great. She's a great person. (laughs) Oh, Sammy, I love that. And I'm glad you said that parenting is at play there because the whole time you were talking about like how she's got such a strong sense of self, I was like, "Mm, that's coming from like, I know y'all are reinforcing that along the way in a way that maybe that was not really like it's a it's a change in how we were parenting, how I how I was parented. Yeah, um, for sure. You know, so it's some of that is very conscious. And I honestly can't say what aspects of Avery's personality might be due to being an only child because Pat and I talk about this all the time. Avery has been who he is since the moment he was born. <laughs> it is yep. it is hilarious. His temperament and his personality have been there the entire time. He is, even as an infant, I mean, he is inquisitive and curious and chatty and verbal, and he can be argumentative because he's so verbal. He loves to make us laugh. All of that stuff you could say, oh, he's just attention-seeking because he's an only child or whatever. Like, you could say all of that, but truly, it's been there all along. Mm -hmm. And maybe he'd be different if he wasn't our first child. I think there is something to what you were saying earlier about the way the way you're so careful and cautious with your first child. And then you just know more um, for your next kids. And, and you've just got more life. You got to take you got to take your new baby to the swim lessons, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> but who can really say? And I'm always amazed when I spend time with my friends who have multiple kids. Sometimes their kids are so different, even though they have been raised by the same parents under pretty much the same circumstances. And I'm just in awe of genetics and how much we just – don't know about being a human, why we are the way we are, you know? Mm -hmm. So let's get back to the things people say to women about our reproductive lives, shall we? Okay, I think I'm (laughs) calm enough now. (laughs) Every time someone asks me, are you having any more kids? Or worse, the assumption, when are you having another kid? All I can think about are the people who desperately want to have another but can't who are now in the position of having to choose whether to reveal their personal business to a complete stranger people (laughs) we have got to stop asking these intrusive questions you know for the most part i can just keep it light and say no we're not you know we're happy with one we're not having any more or whatever but even that is a little painful because i'm reminded yet again that our choice is outside of some perceived ideal about family size i don't know about you oh my gosh yeah and then i think about people who have like three or four kids and then they get judged too for having oh yeah like beyond the ideal why so many i know it's just yeah 
all of this is so problematic for the reasons mm-hmm. that you named and so many more. And I, I actually have taken a stance on this. Like there are some things I will let go, but I will not let go on this one because when people ask me this, I school them on it because it's one, a way to deflect the question away from my own life. because <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. And two, I really do feel like this is a service that I can do for other wound bearing people who might face these these very issues, like wanting to have a second, but for whatever reason can't, or wanting to have a third or whatever. So like with the example of this dental hygienist, when she asked Mm. me, I said to her, that is a really inappropriate question to ask someone (laughs) because you never know if someone might want to have another kid, but they aren't able to. And I work in reproductive health and I know what I'm talking about. What did, how did she respond? She actually was like, huh? I never thought of it that way. Um, okay. So okay. Yeah. maybe she won't do it again. She probably didn't do a great job on my teeth. That's A. But worth <laughs> you it. you got like four cavities now. Yeah, right. But I'm like, <laughs> you just can't take the activists out of me around these things, even at the dentist. And, and not to make too much of it, but I do think that those are opportunities in a small way to just like support each other and like mm-hmm. educating someone who really never thought about it before. And I think that like, it wasn't this person's fault. You know, this is how we're, we're cultured to think these are okay questions to ask. And I could have just deflected it, but it felt like, no, I can actually share from an informed place why this is mm-hmm. uncomfortable. And like, maybe she won't ask anybody else. Maybe she can right. ask about the weather or just clean the person's teeth without having a conversation. <laughs> I bet she won't ask anybody that ever again, honestly. Or if she does, she'll she'll be aware of it. And you know what yeah. I mean? I think I think that's really cool. I love that you did that. Also, it makes me really uncomfortable, Ugh. probably due to my people pleasing tendencies <laughs> that I mentioned earlier. <laughs> I get that. But it, you're right. It is really important. And I have heard that referred to as returning the awkwardness to sender. <laughs> Yes. Because you weren't the one who made it awkward. That's what society would have us feel like. Because you mm. called attention to it, you made it awkward. But actually, she's the one who made it awkward by asking the inappropriate question. And you just refused to smooth it over for her and grease the social wheels, I guess. Yes. I'm going to use that phrase. Returning the awkwardness to sender. I so love good. it. It also reminds me, I was listening to a parenting podcast recently that basically affirms what you just said. It was an episode of Good Inside with Dr. Becky called One and Done, actually. And Dr. Becky is a clinical psychologist. She's written, I think the book that she's written is called Good Inside, and she um, talks a lot about parenting. And on the episode, she interviewed the mother of an only child. And in this person's case, she had experienced infertility, though ultimately they were one and done and she was happy about it. But, um, she had talked about how when people would ask her and her husband why they weren't pregnant yet, her husband would straight up say, well, we've had two miscarriages, so we're taking our time to grieve and heal. And people would like totally shut up and get all awkward, (laughs) but Mm. they were the ones who caused the awkwardness in the first place by asking the intrusive question. And my favorite part of the episode was when Dr. Becky talked about finding a mantra for when people say rude or judgmental things about your family size. And the woman on the show chose this mantra like, I love my family and I'm happy with our decision. And so instead of feeling like she has to justify or excuse or give reasons or whatever or defend herself, you know, she could just say that. And I like that I can just say, I love our family as it is and change the subject. Yeah. And I love how it's affirming what is true for you. Like, it's not just yes. about, it's mm-hmm. actually not even about the other person. It is affirming yes. to yourself what is true and beautiful about your own life. That is so much more powerful than what I did with that hygienist. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's power in <laughs> both, both, honestly. Yeah, yeah I yeah. do. And that's exactly what Dr. Becky said. She said, let's not make this about the other person and let's make this mm. about you because in that moment, you are really needing to reassure yourself that you are confident in your decision. Yeah. And so don't even worry about the other person's feelings. Say the thing that you need to hear. And Beautiful. I – I know. I love that so much. So if there's anybody in the audience who is a parent of an only child and, you know, shares some of these same struggles, go find that Dr. Becky episode one and done because it was really I, – I got a lot out of it. Or even if you're like – if you 
decide not to be a parent. Like, I love my life and I'm happy with our decision. Like, yes. you could make that into anything. Yes. I'm happy with our whatever. Like, that is yeah. so – that is so good. I love that. I mean – I feel like I love my life is a fairly subversive thing to say in general, Mm -hmm. you know, like I feel like that in and of itself would stop some people in their tracks because enough, enough in our society is a concept that we're just not good at. And I think more, more, more is, um, is what we're always supposed to be striving for. And so Mm -hmm. to have somebody say what I have is enough, now let's change the subject is I think Mm -hmm. can be pretty powerful. That is powerful. That doesn't mean, though, that I don't still feel guilty about being one and done. I don't know if this is something you've ever experienced, but I think there is pressure. I don't know where it comes from, but to feel guilty or selfish about choosing to have one. Like, I'm depriving the grandparents of another grandchild, or I'm depriving my child of a playmate. And especially when it's framed that way to me, I... It really gets my back up because all I can think is they're not owed that. And why is it my job? Like truly what what is being asked of me is to grow a human in my body for someone else's benefit. And then to care for them too. And then care for them for their entire lives. And I just find that such a – like just like you were saying at the, you know, the top of the show that – the ways we turn these big concepts into small talk and these like offhand questions, it's so problematic. Oh, yeah, it really is. And I think all of these, you know, trite questions really are, they, there's something nefarious underneath it all. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. tied to this societal and oppressive idea that as womb bearing people, it's our responsibility and our sacred duty to become parents multiple times. Like, Mm -hmm. we should just want to because that's what God wants us to do, especially if Mm -hmm. we're white and Christian identifying people because, well, white Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, it's true. You know, that's it's our duty as white women to make sure that we're replacing our families, right? Our our spouse. Um, So I really do think that these pressures that we feel – to under like undergird an ideological agenda that at its very core is meant to disempower us and disconnect us from our bodies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really do. So the point is, <laughs> this is going to be mm-hmm. no surprise to anybody, but every decision around creating a family, like whatever that means to you, that can be you and of yourself and your friends or whatever. That's mm-hmm. deeply personal and ought to be respected and honored and supported without question or pressure or coercion, coercion from any source, including the people who claim to love you the most. Oh, and yep. the truth is there is no right way to do any of this. There's not. We all have to do the best we can with the resources we have, all while we make we work to make sure everyone can truly make the decisions that are best for them, because most people can't. Amen. Absolutely. And I want to say one last thing before we wrap up, because I feel like we're getting pretty close to the end of our conversation here. But I was thinking about this and a question I hear that I do think has some validity is what about when Pat and I get older and Avery has to face dealing with caring for us or grieving our passing even without any siblings to lean on? And I totally see where that question comes from, especially after this past year of watching my mother and my aunt supporting each other through the loss of both of their parents. You know, that that question of all the questions does give me pause. But I approach it in a couple of ways. The first is we're being very intentional about the financial aspects of planning for our retirement and our estate and any long-term care that we might need so that hopefully Avery isn't faced with this insurmountable financial burden of caring for us on his own. That's real for a lot of people. And I know that that is an enormous privilege on our part to even be able to think that way. But honestly, it is a factor of why we're stopping at one because it's what our resources can support. So Mm -hmm. that's part of it. But this is more than just a financial question to me. 
we are also doing everything we can to make sure that Avery has strong bonds to his extended family, including his cousins and aunts and uncles. And we also encourage strong bonds with people outside the family. And I think that that's key. I think the question of what about when we die, who will he lean on? It feels like that comes from, it's well-meaning, but it comes from a very individualistic, like nuclear family above all kind of place. And if we can help Avery understand his place in the world, in the community, and build strong friendships and be part of a solid community and teach him how to show up for others, which I think is like the crucial part of that, then we can trust that we've done the, the best that we can so that he'll have what he needs when it's time for others to show up for him. And we would do this whether we had one child or six children. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought, do you think about it like this, Katie? As you were talking about it, I was just thinking even more generally about how easy it is in general to get caught up in the what ifs around Mm, the future, which are often like rooted in anxiety or fear, really. You know, it's our brain's way of attempting to control what might happen and mitigate any negative experiences or emotions that we will face or our children might face. But yeah. That Mm -hmm. is just not where we spend our lives. Like, we don't spend Mm -hmm. our lives in the what ifs. They're lived in the here and now. And we can only make decisions for what is true in the now with the resources and information that we have now. Like, there's nothing guaranteed. You could do everything that you can to prepare for something and life doesn't go that way. And so kind of like what you were saying, rather than preparing for the what ifs that Sammy might face in the future and prevent against anything negative. I want to prepare her right now for dealing with the uncertainty and inevitable changes and losses that are just part of being human, right? Yes. Like, Mm -hmm. I wasn't prepared to lose my grandmother at nine years old. Yeah. Nothing can prepare you for that. So Sam is a very strong and resilient person with an incredible spirit, and I have no doubt that she will navigate whatever challenges come her way in whatever form with grace and Mm -hmm. wisdom and and. Preparing her for whatever comes is like the best gift that I could ever give her, not a sibling. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> I think we should leave it there. <laughs> there okay. Is always Sounds good. More we can say. Yeah, but I think we should leave it there. I'm going to hold on to that. <laughs> so as always, folks, if you have something you'd like to contribute to the conversation, a question, or just something we missed – please let us know by emailing us at team at kindredspodcast.com or messaging us on Instagram. What's our Instagram handle? <laughs> at kindredspodcast. It's pretty yeah. uh, dormant, but yeah. still reach us there. <laughs> yeah, if you, send a, if you send a DM, Katie will see it. <laughs> yeah, let us know if there's another taboo you want us to tackle. But otherwise, mm-hmm. we'll be back soon with another taboo topic that we will enjoy mm-hmm. diving into, as always. As always. Talk to you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 